morning, everybody. I want to thank Wayne for leading singing for us this morning. Wayne is an old friend, and I'll let you decide what I mean by that. We got to worship with his family in Yorba Linda for years, and the Fletcher family has been a great blessing to us. So would you do me a favor and thank him when you see him on the way out today? Appreciate you. Um, we've got a lot to cover today, and so I want to invite you to open up to John chapter 6, where we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, and as we talked about last week, when we introduced this chapter, you can break it down into three kind of miniature narratives that make up this chapter. There's one great narrative taking place that culminates with what Brock just read for us a minute ago, but along the way there's three different things that happen. So we covered the first two of these sections last week when Jesus feeds the 5,000 men plus women and children miraculously, and then when he walks on water across the Sea of Galilee. So that's where we ended to set up what happens next. And I got to apologize to you. I thought I could get through the rest of the text in one week, and I can, but I think you guys would be very unhappy with me. So we're going to split this into two lessons. There's just too much here that is of vital importance to skim over it. I really want to take some time and let this passage sink in. And so we're going to do our best to cover part of the second part of John chapter 6, and then we'll wrap it up. Not next week. Next week we've got family worship. We're going to talk about fruits of the Spirit, something the kids have been talking about for a while, but the week after. And so that'll give you guys a week to spend some time on your own in John chapter 6. And if you're not doing that already, I hope that you are reading ahead and spending time in the text knowing where we're going next. And so knowing that we're going to be in John chapter 6 for a couple weeks, I hope you'll plant yourselves spiritually in this passage as we go through it for the next couple weeks. So where we're at today is we're going to pick up in verse 22. We left off in 21. We're going to pick up in verse 22. So Jesus has joined the disciples in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They were terrified at first upon realizing who it is. They welcome him into the boat and they welcome him as Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And we're going to talk more about that as we go throughout this text. So beginning in verse 22, it reads, The next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples. So they're trying to figure out exactly where Jesus went, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowds realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. I want you to pause right there for just a second. If you remember the way that this whole chapter begins, it begins by telling us that great crowds were following Jesus because they had seen the signs he had performed in healing the sick. And yet Jesus is telling them here, hold on, you're not following me because you saw the signs. So something has changed in the attitude, in the mindset, in the motivation of this group of people, and Jesus is noticing that and he's calling them out on it. He is not, I want to, I want to make crystal clear, a point I made last week, I want to reiterate it. Nowhere in this text is Jesus criticizing those who are physically hungry. He is not diminishing the needs, the physical needs that people have. In fact, he's moved to comp by compassion to meet those needs. 
What is happening here, though, is he's critical of their motivation. They might have started following him because of the signs they saw, but something has trumped that in their own minds. And what was it? Well, he gave them food. Now the thing they're really after is the food. It's not the signs anymore. It's the fact that their bellies were filled. And so that is the reason they're following him. And Jesus points that out. You're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has placed his seal of approval. There are things in this world more important than food. Wow, that was a deafening silence. <clears throat> there are things in this world more important than food. Anybody? Okay, I got some mumblings there. Okay, you guys aren't on the same page. I'm going to try to convince you like Jesus is that this is true. Okay, maybe we'll get to an amen by the end of the sermon. Here's a question I'd like you to think about, though. How can our current situation impact our ability to understand that truth? Jesus is trying to get these people to understand, you're following me for food, but I'm telling you there's something more important than food. As I was writing this, or typing it out, I kind of had a moment where I had to just sit and humbly reflect on the irony of me, of all people, writing out the fact that there are things in this world more important than food. Because Robin can tell you, most of the time in my life, I act like there is nothing in the world more important than food. I get food moody really quick. Right? I get more than five minutes past my designated window for eating, and I start to get hangry. And it impacts the people around me, right, love? So it's not lost on me that even in this text, I'm forced to reconcile what I know to be true with how I behave in my own life. I know that life is more than food, and yet I don't act like that most of the time. So for me, someone who has only lived a life of abundance, someone whose biggest struggle in life is not when I'm going to eat, but what I'm going to eat. You with me? A lot of us are in that situation, right? How many of you have a group of people, or maybe just your own family, and you go out to eat every Sunday, and it's the same argument, which is what? Where are we going to go to eat, all right? Unless you're the Alsips. They've got that programmed in. They know exactly where they're going every Sunday. Everybody else, we've got to figure it out, right? Where are we going to eat? Oh, woe is us that we have to pick from the plethora of options available to us. But that's the mindset we have. So we live a life of abundance. Does that abundance impact the way that we understand this reality? Of course it does. Even in our abundance, sometimes, we struggle to see past the physical and into the spiritual reality that lies ahead of us. But not just for those in abundance, those who are in genuine places of need. If you looked at a starving man in his eyes, I mean genuinely starving, and said, Get over it. There's things more important than food. How do you think he would react? And again, that's not what Jesus is doing. He is not dismissing their physical needs. He's trying to get them to understand that even in moments of abundance or moments of scarcity, there are always things more important than the physical things that we tend to fixate on. Yes, I provided you with food, but do you realize I have something more to offer you than just another meal? Then they asked him, 
So Jesus says, you've got to work for food, not that perishes, but food that leads to eternal life. So they clue in on that word work, and they think, okay, well, what is it we have to do? What is the job you want to give us so that we can get that kind of food? And of course, their minds go to a place of physical labor, but Jesus isn't talking about physical labor here. He's talking about a work that takes place in our hearts and in our minds. It's about belief. It's about conviction. It's about trust. It's about loyalty. And so he says... They asked the question, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered them, the work of God is this. To do what? To believe in the one he has sent. This is yet another conversation in the Gospel of John about who Jesus is. They're concerned about what he can provide them. He wants them to be concerned with who he is. And I think some of us still struggle with this. We fixate on what Jesus can give us instead of fixating on who Jesus is. Apart from Jesus, we can never truly understand our need for something more than food. I believe that. I believe that this is a gift God gives us to be able to free ourselves from the physical and focus on the spiritual. Left to our own devices, we will only ever think of the next meal. Jesus frees us from that and allows us to think on things spiritually, things that we would not normally set our minds on. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, great conversation that Paul's having here about what life in the Spirit looks like. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Do you feel like that's you sometimes? Like you are a person who is fixated on the things pertaining to the flesh. The flesh wants certain things, food among them. And if you've got your mind set on the flesh, then those are the only things you ever think about, or those things that satisfy the flesh. But listen to what Paul says, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds instead set on the things that the Spirit desires. It's a totally different kind of mindset. And here's, I think, where we go wrong We've decided that this is completely within ourselves to determine which of these two mindsets we have. There's some people that only think about physical things, and then there's those of us who, because we're smarter than everybody else, have learned to focus on spiritual things. That's not what Paul is saying. How is it that we learn to set our minds on spiritual things? The spirit that lives within us guides us into that mentality. That's not something we accomplish on our own. And how is it that the Spirit comes to dwell within us? Because we've been joined together with Christ. If it's not for Jesus and our understanding of who He is and a relationship with Him that He invites us into and the giving of His Spirit to dwell within us, if it's not for that, we're only ever going to think about the physical. He opens up a window for us that allows us to see beyond our immediate circumstances and think about those things that truly matter. And he's inviting this crowd to be a part of that. So they ask him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? They're trying to manipulate Jesus into doing what they want him to do. And here's here's their line of reasoning. We talked about it last week. They think Jesus is the prophet, just like Moses promised. And so if you really are the prophet that we've been waiting for, the one Moses promised to us, then why don't you prove it to us by, oh, I don't know, here's a good idea, make us some food like Moses did. 
Give us bread. Give us manna like Moses did. This is all a manipulation. Can they manipulate him into doing what they really want him to do? Can they get out of him what they want? And so they say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do you see the manipulation taking place? How many times in the Gospels do you see Jesus falling for the trick of someone trying to manipulate him into doing something? Uh, That'd be a big fat goose egg. He knows exactly what they're doing. He knows why they're doing it. And so he's not going to fall for that. Here's his response. Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. First of all, understand that Moses may have been God's servant in that case, but Moses didn't make bread appear from heaven. Where did the bread come from? It came from God the Father. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now listen to what he does next. Sir, they said to him, always give us this bread. And this is a close parallel to what we read about back in John chapter 4. You remember the conversation Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. There it's not about bread, it's about what? Water, right? And he tells her the same thing. If you knew who you asked, you would know that I could give you a different kind of water, a water that leads to eternal life. And what is her response? The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. They have the same reaction. Jesus is offering them something amazing, the kind of bread that comes down from heaven and leads to eternal life. Who wouldn't want that? Give us that bread. That's their request from him. But then this is his response. And this is where things start to get dicey in this conversation. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. They're looking for him to give them something, and he is saying, no, I'm here to give you myself. I'm here to give of myself. I am the very thing you're looking for. And this is what we do. We, we look at Jesus and we think, well, what does he have to offer us? He is the thing that is offered to us. This is why it's all about his identity. If you're only, after, only ever searching after what Jesus can provide, then you never fully understand who he is. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, now listen to what he says, and still you do not believe. You do not believe. That's his accusation against this group of people. Now remember, this group of people was following him. They had already decided that he was the prophet that Moses had told them about. They tried to make him king. So i got to ask the question, what did they not believe? What exactly did they not believe? Why is Jesus so critical of them in that moment? If he says he can give them bread from heaven and their response is give it to us, why is he so critical of them? Why is this his reaction? What did they not believe? This, I think, is what it boils down to. This is what they had trouble with. Life doesn't come from food. Life comes from God. And specifically in this moment, life comes from God through the person of Jesus. And this is where we really struggle. Again, this is the battle of the physical In the spiritual, you think back to the garden. Man has life. He's got access to the tree of life. He's got a relationship with God the creator where he walks alongside his God in the garden. And then they sin and what happens? 
God removes them from the garden, and he puts a barrier so that they don't have access to the tree of life any longer. But what's worse, they don't have access to God any longer. And suddenly death becomes a reality for mankind. What is it that we need if we're ever going to overcome the curse of death? Just a better quality of food? No, we need a relationship with the Father. Again, we need access to his life-giving presence. Life doesn't come from food. It does, right? Life or Food sustains us for another day. But the kind of life Jesus has promised, it isn't life for another day. It's life what? Eternal. And that comes only from God and his life-giving presence. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, Deuteronomy 8 is a passage I would encourage you to jot down in your notes, revisit this week, spend some time in it. Moses is reminding them of what God did for them as he sustained them through their wilderness wanderings. And he says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. He caused you to hunger and then he gave you the answer to your hunger. What should that have taught them? That they can always rely on God for what? For sustenance, right? For provision. But did they learn that lesson? No, they didn't. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is that passage ringing a bell? Have you heard that before? You have. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness... And he has fasted for how long? Do you remember? 40 days without food. And so what does Satan tempt him with? He says, turn this stone into bread. And what is Jesus' response? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus can teach this lesson because he experienced it, that there are things in life more important than food. And this is what God is trying to get his children Israel to understand in this passage. Jesus co-ops this and rephrases it, but uses the same principle in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, 31 through 33, that whole passage about anxiety and, and relieving ourselves of the worry that so often plagues us. He says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then what? All these things will be given to you as well. Seek after those things that truly matter. Those spiritual things that we should be hungering and thirsting after. Is Jesus really more important than bread? I see some people nodding their heads yes. Do we believe that? Are we convicted of that? I'm going to put it to the test. I'm going to preach right through lunch here. You guys get to skip lunch. All right. But honestly, is Jesus really more important than bread? Of course, the answer is yes. Is that borne out in the way that we live? All those the Father gives me, he goes on to say, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but will raise them up on the last day. I want you to think about this for just a minute. 
This first statement he makes here, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. It's a very interesting statement in light of what happens at the end of this chapter when a large number of the people here do what? Leave. And why do they leave? Because they have a hard time coming to terms with what he's saying to them. But Jesus is saying, I'm not going to drive you away. If you leave, it's not because I drove you away. It's because you failed to understand what I was telling you. There's an open invitation given by the Creator through the Son. He doesn't exclude anyone from that invitation. But too often we exclude ourselves by our unwillingness to hear what He's saying. And then He goes on and He says this, For my Father's will... Okay, I came to do my Father's will. What is His will? This is His will, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. There is anxiety that comes along with just being a human. Because there are certain things we need to survive, and whenever those things are put in jeopardy, what do we do? We panic. We panic because we don't know where sustenance is going to come from the next day. Jesus is assuring us here that the thing that we really need, not life for tomorrow, but life for eternity, has been secured by Him. There is no anxiety in your quest for eternal life if you allow Jesus to be the source of that eternal life. Because then you don't have to, to panic over whether you were good enough today. You don't have to panic over whether God is going to be true to his promises tomorrow. All of that has been secured for you in Jesus. And so he's trying to set their minds at ease. The thing that you need, I have come to give you. And the will of the Father that I came to accomplish is to give you that very thing. And at this time, the Jews began to grumble about him. So they're starting to have a problem now with some of the statements that he's made. And specifically this. They're grumbling because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Hold on a second. You came from where? No, we know where you came from. And it wasn't heaven. It was that little village down the road. This is their response. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? I want to talk about this grumbling for just a minute. Because that's a word John uses, I think, on purpose. If you go back to the account of the Exodus, we talked about this months ago. In Exodus 15, the Israelites grumbled because they were lacking water. In Exodus 16, they grumble because they're lacking food. In Exodus 17, they grumble again because they're lacking water yet again. And this pattern emerges where the accusations are the same. Number one, oh, we wish we were back in Egypt. And number two, God brought us out here to do what? Do you remember? To kill us. They're grumbling. Here's what I want you to see. So you got grumbling in 15, grumbling in 16, grumbling in 17. And then in Exodus chapter 17, we find this. And he called the place Massah and Meribah, which mean testing and quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled, And because they tested the Lord, saying, this is what I want you to pay attention to. This is the question on their mind. This is why they were so uneasy. This is why they were making accusations against God. This is why they were grumbling. Because this question was burning a hole in their minds. Is the Lord among us or not? 
What did God's people crave in this moment? What did they crave in this moment? Two things. Two things. The presence of God and the provision of God. They wanted to know that God was among them and they wanted to know that God was going to take care of them. And yet they doubted in both of those things. Now cast your mind back to John chapter 6 and we find a repeat of this exact same saga. They begin grumbling because even though this group of people is seeking after those same two things, the provision of God and the presence of God, remember, they want Jesus to be the fulfillment of all those promises God has made, the prophet and the king. They want to know God is among them and he hasn't forgotten his people and he is going to redeem them. They want his presence. And they also want his provision. They long after that manna that God once gave them. They want to know every day when they wake up, God will provide for them. They want to know that. And yet Jesus stands in front of them, looking them in the eyes. They're looking at him face to face, and he is the presence and the provision of God. The presence of God, the provision of God, the promises of God, all those Ps are wrapped up in the person of God. I get a raise for alliteration, right? (laughs) But they don't get it. They don't get it. They're looking at him and they're not seeing who he truly, truly is. And so Jesus says to them bluntly, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 13. They will all be taught by God. Why does he quote from that passage? Well, I'm convinced that throughout this entire conversation, Jesus is leaning into Isaiah chapters 54 and 55. But this statement specifically he uses because they're looking forward to a time in God's redemptive history when all of Israel's children would be taught by God himself. Guess what? This is that moment when God in the flesh stands before them and teaches them. The thing they've been looking forward to is taking place in front of their eyes. Are they ready to accept it or not? You go into Isaiah, the next chapter, chapter 55. Let me just share this passage with you quickly. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. God is inviting his people to take advantage of his mercy and his love. All those things you need to be sustained by, come, I'll give them to you. You don't have to pay me for them. I'll give them to you freely. But that's not what we do. We don't look to God for sustenance. We panic over the things we don't have. And listen to what he says next. Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy. We work all day to make money so that we can spend that money on the things that we need. But the things that we think we need that we spend our money and our time on aren't the things we actually need, are they? Now, I'm not saying, the lesson, the takeaway is not go home and stop spending money on food. No, you need food to stay alive. And God has provided you with employment so that you can provide for your family. And if you're lacking that, he's provided you with this group of people who will make sure that your needs are met. But he's saying, the things that you chase after are not the things that truly matter. Why do you keep spending your money on bread if that bread doesn't fully satisfy you? 
And why are you working towards accumulating those things that never truly satisfy you? Listen, he says, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. If you will just listen to me, you will have everything you ever need. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. John chapter 6, then we return, and this is what Jesus says. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And we get a call back yet again to the prologue in John chapter 1 and verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. You want God's presence in your life. I'm here among you. You want God's provision in your life. I'm here to give you what you need. Bread that won't just sustain you until tomorrow, but bread that will sustain you through eternity. You want to know that all those promises God has made will come to fruition? I'm here to show you that that is exactly the case. This is what Jesus is telling them. And yet they're still not understanding. And so he says one more time, emphatically, to drive the point home. I am the bread of life. And I want to make just one statement as we close. Thinking about all of this and what's unfolding here. The real tragedy in never fully understanding the identity of Jesus is that you might come to him hoping that he can carry you through a moment, like a moment of need, a moment of hunger. But Jesus can carry me through this moment, but you can encounter him in that way and then walk away not realizing that he actually could have carried you through in eternity. We want Jesus to sustain us for this long, and he's offering to sustain us forever. If we could only see past the next meal and understand what he really has to offer us. And so my question for you this morning is a simple one. Are you hungry? Not food moody, not hangry. Are you hungry? Are you hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Are you hungry for Jesus? Not just what he can offer, but who he is. If you are, here's our invitation this morning. Won't you grab a hold of that relationship with both hands and not let go? We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song here in just a minute. If you are hungry this morning, and if you've been hungry for a while, and if you're hungry in a way that it doesn't matter what you eat, you never find yourself satisfied, there's something missing in your life a relationship with your Creator. We've got some good news this morning. One of our young men, Paxton Redder, has decided to put Christ on in baptism this morning. And so we're going to get ready to do that. I invite you to stand and sing. Wayne's going to lead us in one more song. And as you do that, if there's any other ways that we can serve you, or since we've got the water filled up and warmed up, if you've been waiting to put Christ on, what are you waiting for? Let's make that decision this morning. Can I invite our shepherds to come forward? I'm going to help Paxton get ready here in the back. If you have a need, can you come forward? Let our shepherds know as we stand and we sing this song. Let's stand and sing. Just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. It's all 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 right
It's alright. It's alright. It's alright. Yes, we know that just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. It's alright. It's alright. It's alright. It's alright. It's alright. It's alright.